This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Do you say and do things when drinking that you regret the next day? Is alcohol a problem for you or someone you really care about? Over the next hour, we'll find out how people just like you and me found sobriety in AA through sharing their experience, strength and hope. Welcome to AA Live, brought to you by Alcoholics Anonymous. Kia ora e te whanau. welcome to the AA Live radio show. This is the show that explores the ideas behind a way of recovery through the Alcoholics Anonymous program. It is lovely to have you out there listening with us this, ne- this evening. Hey, um, Alcoholics Anonymous, um, the service is based purely on volunteers within the fellowship, and I am absolutely delighted to have my co-host, Tony, guesting with me this evening. Hi, Tony. Kia ora, Jan. Kia ora, everybody out there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, it's nice to be uh, back tonight, so yeah. uh, thank you for inviting me um, back on the show. Yeah, absolute pleasure. Thank you for coming. It's um been a while since we've seen you on here so let's uh open with the serenity prayer for starters shall we let's do that okay god God, grant me the serenity serenity to accept accept the things things i cannot cannot change change. courage to change the things i can and wisdom to know the difference thank you right folks i'm going to read the preamble of aa so aa is the Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their extreme—sorry, their experience, strength and hope with each other that they may solve their common problem and help others to recover from alcoholism. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. There are no dues or fees for AA membership. We are self-supporting through our own contributions. AA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organisation or institution does not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorses nor opposes any causes. Our primary purpose is to stay sober and help other alcoholics to achieve sobriety. So that gives you a little bit of detail about what AA is all about. Uh, Just to let you know that while we're sitting having this chat this evening and, and having this radio show, these opinions that you hear from us, they are just that. They are our opinions. They are not necessarily that of AAs as a whole. So, yeah, be aware of that, folks. We do put our foot in our mouths every now and then. <laughs> <laughs> it is what we're supposed to do. So I'm going to get Tony to uh, read the daily reflection as a bit of a spirit lifter for us. Thanks, Jen. Yes, um, and this is uh, the spirit lifter from our daily reflections, March 22. Uh, no more struggle. And we have ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol, and that's out of Alcoholics Anonymous, page 84. When AA found me, I thought I was in for a struggle and that AA might provide the strength I needed to beat alcohol. Victorious in that fight, who knows what other battles I could win. I would need to be strong though. All my previous experience with life proved that. Today I do not have to struggle or exert my will. If I take those 12 steps and let my higher power do the real work, my alcohol problem disappears all by itself. My living problems also cease to be struggles. I just have to ask whether acceptance or change is required. It is not my will, but his. This is this needs doing. 
Lovely, thanks, Tony. Look, it's um, it's interesting <laughs> listening to that. I did a really, I had a couple of things today that have happened to me where I actually used parts of this program uh, to to help me get through. One was I, you wouldn't believe this, folks, but I we would if you knew me. I bought something on Trade Me today, and I put an auto bid in. And instead of the $101, I put $10,100. And then I watched oh, with absolute horror as the price kept going up because this person kept bidding against me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that was a shocker. And I only wanted to go to 101 and that was my limit. And it went past 100 And then all of a sudden it was at 150 And I couldn't for the life of me figure out how to get rid of my auto bid. And I was sitting on the side of the road in the car and then I would have been just in a panic <laughs> I mean I was in a bit of a panic but I wasn't losing it like I would have I wasn't sitting in there and oh, yeah, hitting the side of the car and swearing and, and cursing I just ended up sitting there got up to 165 and uh, I was going no god please stop the person bidding stop the person bidding and we got down to 20 seconds you know it's a two minute limit got down to 20 seconds and we thought yes it stopped i was with my son and they bid again <laughs> and it went up to 176 dollars before they stopped but oh my gosh i was sitting there in the car saying please please make this person stop and they did <laughs> otherwise i could have bought this small household item for ten thousand one hundred dollars, <laughs> just how ridiculous! But anyway, after that, I drove past a, a bottle store that has a pub attached to it, and it's a, it was a sunny day. There were these two guys sitting out on the table outside, cold beers in hand, having a cigarette, and I thought, oh god, that looks like a good thing to do. Mm. It just and just like that, it clicked into my head, and I thought. But I don't need it. No. You know, I don't need to go there today. That's not where I'm going. And then, of course, my head went into how how we romanticise the whole vision. Like at that split second, they were laughing, and I thought, oh, wouldn't that be fun? Mm. But then I jumped forward to, you know, 10 o'clock at night when I was looking for the next drink and having trouble rolling cigarettes and I was you know, at that st stage of the actual reality of where my drinking took me. Mm. So it, it gave this this program has given me that to be able to look forward and go, no Jan, you don't want to go there. Yeah. That's not where you're going. No, no, I, well, you know, you've just described a, a life's like that moment. Mm. We all have those moments, you know. Um and you know, I think um, you know, if you're looking at people sitting out in the sunshine having a beer at the pub, that's the picture in our brain that is the ideal, or certainly the picture in my brain that's the ideal, and it implies that there's not a cure in the world. Well, life's not like that. It's simply not true that there's not a cure in the world. <laughs> yeah. um, and when things go wrong, as they do each day, I, I, you know, understand exactly that moment. It's not what we wanted. <gasps> 
But I think getting sober, and I think that's what you're describing, getting sober, I've got tools today mm, to actually not absolutely. fall into that pitfall and go, I need to be in a place where there are no cares in the world. It's an illusion. It simply doesn't exist. And with because I'm sober, yes, it didn't go the way I wanted it to. <laughs> you know, we can laugh about it even now or maybe a bit later. Um yeah, we don't have to do the same things that we've always done, or you drink it away. It doesn't really go away anyway um, under, the, under the influence. It's just sitting there waiting until we come back to it. So, yeah, I'm sorry that happened. That sounds <laughs> quite frightening. But, oh, you know, it's a life like that moment, isn't it? It is. Yeah. It's an everyday moment. And honestly, I would have gone straight to the bottle store and bought something after mm. that happened. It, it, you know, it's... It was seventy dollars. I didn't want to spend, but um, you know, I had to turn around and, and say to my son, "Oh well, we've got this piece of furniture, and it's going to look great in the house, <laughs> and we'll use it for this, and we'll use it for that." And I had to find the positives. It'll be more cherished. Yes. And, 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 you know, getting sober for me, um, I didn't know the value of things when I was um, under the influence and intoxicated. Uh, it wasn't just destroying relationships. There were cars and property and stuff that through drunkenness were, were scratched and damaged and all that sort of stuff. I think, um, you know, adding value. I, these days, being sober, uh, every everyone and everything has, has a value in, inside me these days. I, the things... Yeah, like you recognise the, the value. The relationships I have, I, I want to look after. The, the property I own, I want to look after. Um, you, it, it's changed my perception on, um, you know, and it's not being materialistic. It, it's I was going to say, it's not a matter no. of how much you've got. Well, it's I a lost, matter of... I lost everything in getting sober, but that's exactly. a story for another day. That's another day. Um, <laughs> so I went through the material um, struggle in my head um, sincerely. No, I'm not talking about materialism. I'm talking about, um, you know, the value of everything in life. Yes, and life. life's a one shot, and we only we only pass through this moment mm. uh, now, once. And um, and and having a, a sort of a concept of that, um, yeah, you will cherish this furniture. It <laughs> 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 will have added value. Absolutely, it has added value already. A minute after the the bloody great big boo that I did. Okay. Hey, look, you are listening to the AA Live Radio Show in association with our friends from Otago Access Radio on 105.4 FM. We're going to go to a song now, Enjoy, and uh, we'll be back with you shortly.
Welcome back. What a great song. And look, in our last show, we discussed step two, which was came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. This month, being the month of March, we uh, naturally have moved on to step three. So step three for us is made a decision to turn our lives over to the care of God as we understand him. So that to me was a really important part just for myself when I first came into the rooms because I said to myself, God, what? And I instantly went to God of religion. Hmm. And what I have learned in my time is that my God is actually my spiritual side of it. It's not actually based so much with religion as such. Hmm. I don't go to a church or anything like that, but it is my spirit, it's my spiritual strength um, on my shoulder every day. Um, so what I wanted to ask you, Tony, is if you could sort of share with us what step three meant to you or means to you now, because I'm personally I find as I go through longer time of living a sober life that the steps develop in me and how I see them and my understanding of them gets bigger as well. So you've got uh, more sobriety than myself. So Mm. what does it mean for you? Well, uh, it's a a huge question, Jenna. I think, you know, the way I look at the steps are these are 12 spiritual principles that when you pull off the wall, You'll see them in a banner if you go along to a meeting. But if you begin to pull them off the wall and put them into your life, um, it will turn it will turn your life, um, it will change your life from the inside out. You know? Yes. Um, so these are spiritual principles. Uh, so what what I see today might not be what I'll see in five years' time, and, and, and that should be the case because we're constantly growing. Yes. Um, and I think, too, that the steps work in unison um, with each other. I believe that there were six steps in, in um, from our founding fathers in AA, but they, were, they added another six to flesh out the program um, in its entirety for it to make, um, you know, more sense. Right. Um, so, you know, um, step two comes before, uh, you know, step three and so on and so on and so on. Mm. Um, so we're dealing really with a higher power or what is God or who is God. Um, and ultimately for me, in my experience, um, you know, I had to realise that I couldn't do this by myself. And and throughout the years, I tried every which way to negotiate with this thing called alcohol. You know, I would not drink on a during the week, and I'd only drink on weekends, that didn't work. I'd only drink at parties, that didn't work. I'd only drink at home, that didn't work. You know, I only Until eventually you're drinking in every one of those right. things. That, I, 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 I have drink on Friday night with the boys, and that, that was it, and that didn't work. Mm-hmm. So doing this thing myself with my resources, with my thinking, with my willpower, with all these things never worked for me. I... I was compelled, had a compulsion to drink. I needed something bigger than myself, um, which invites the idea of a higher power. And and rightly so, I think, 
when you hear religion and God, you, you hear a one-sided relationship. Yes. Yeah. I, as a mental, I, I'm talking a lot of pictures. I believe as human beings we see a lot in our minds of pictures. And I, I see this finger pointing, you must do this and you must do this and you must do that and you can't do this. Uh, and I don't believe that's actually a relationship with God. That's just a dictatorial tyrant. <laughs> and I certainly didn't want a higher power like that. <laughs> yes, God. Well, I mean, we already had one. It was in the form of a bottle. In a bottle that's why well, I, was, I was a tyrant myself. I, yes. I didn't need anything more like that. So uh, step three, making a decision to turn uh, our lives over to the care of God as we understand him. There's, there's two real parts to this, this step, I believe. The, the first part is making a decision to step out of our own resources into um, into a bigger pool of resources. And when you say resources, do you also mean the control? You well, know, we're always at the gear stick, we're always driving well, our What own. I found is the more I tried to control things, the more out of control yes. my life went. What people don't appreciate, I think, is this being a spiritual program, uh, it is a life in, of paradoxes. It's inverted, if you like. It's hard to explain until you experience it. So the more I tried to control things with my drinking, with with the world around me, with relationships, you know, in all the arenas of family and work and all that sort of stuff, the more out of control things got for me. Yes. Just like in recovery, the more I rely on my higher power, the more I I um, seek um, to gain resources not on my own of, of from this bigger resource pool. Oddly enough, the more I, I give away my control to my higher power, the more control I appear to be in in my life. It's um it's a paradox. It's it's quite an amazing thing. Um, but the first real step was. If you're the kind of alcoholic I was, I fought everybody and anything to say as sick as I possibly could for as long as I possibly could. I found everybody that tried to intervene with interventions, and we're talking doctors and nurses and crisis team, you know, partners and wives, you know, and family members. We're talking the whole, you know, who saw my drinking as destructive, not only for me, but for everything around. Um, you know, I would... I could not understand why they were, if you don't like it, then just go, leave me alone, you know, it was, and I would fight back and rail that you're wrong, you're wrong, why are you doing this to me? And I couldn't understand that my drinking was very destructive, um, you know, uh, so. You had to stop attacking me, yeah, it's not my fault. <laughs> exactly, so there was fighting me, I, yeah. I did not want their resources, I did not want the intervention that they were offering. So I had to come to a place where I realised that the game was up, the jig was up. I could no longer, I, I, could, I could not get out of this the way I was doing it. And I think alcoholics, uh, when things become bad enough, the compulsion to drink drives us on, but we know everything's falling apart around us. We just can't stop the, the moving vehicle, so to speak. I have to agree with you there. You that know. was how it was for me. Yeah, mm. and, and so making um, that decision to surrender, mm -hmm. to accept that 
under my terms, this isn't working out. I have to set terms on on my higher powers terms. Um, you know, that's the first part of the step, and that can take years. <laughs> it took me years. It took me years <laughs> too. I understand. You know, the, the second part of it is, and and usually when we're contemplating this, we're running into this this um, uh, objection, or we're running into this prejudice of organised what we perceive as organised religion. Um, you know, even in organised religion, uh, the mainstay is that God wishes to have a relationship with us. You know, it's not <laughs> it's not dictatorial, <laughs> pointing the finger and being a tyrant. Um, and and that's the and premise. That's also- we are seeking to have a relationship with our higher power. So it's a reciprocation. Um, the, and, and you know, so we've made our decision. We realise we can't do it. I need to 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 ask my higher power for help and, and take advice, whatever that might be. Um, but here's the thing. It's turning our lives over to the care of God as we understand him. Yes. And I think that's a liberating um, sentence because we don't have to be theologians. We don't have to be... Um, ministers and priests. We don't have to have a firm understanding of any of those organised religion premises. So, you know what I mean? It's um, it, I find that, as we understand them, a liberating, you know, and then you've got your, is it really a hymn? Is it really, well, you've got to realise, you know, that this was written um, in the 1930s. So there is some language that, that is caught up in the times it was written in. But what, what, we're, what we're really saying is that God you understand, a higher power, a power greater than yourself. And uh, so for, for some, that can mean a group of people, the wisdom held in a group of people uh, can can be a higher power in, in its own right. It's anything that's outside ourselves. We, we've got to get outside ourselves to get the wisdom and the input that we need to actually overcome this thing. And I think that's these are the key principles. And, and if you go back to what I was saying originally, if you look at the steps on the wall and actually see them as spiritual principles, begin to pull them off the wall, put them into your life, you will see changes and, and miracles absolutely um, unfold before your eyes. And um, you know, the theme is about struggle and fighting. Um, you know, uh, I, I have to say that as soon as I accepted these premises, the first three premises that I was powerless over alcohol, yes. that a God of my understanding could actually restore me to sanity. Yes. Uh, and that I chose to to put myself in the hands of this higher power. Once I did that, I had surrendered. I had said, you know, I surrender. Um, and I, I, I came up out of the trench with my hands up and I wasn't sure what was going to happen next, but I was handing myself over to this, this power. And with that surrender, everything got a hell of a lot easier in that moment. There was no fighting against this prejudice. There was no fighting against the alcoholism. There was no fighting of all the, all the issues and troubles that I had. And I had quite a few of them. <laughs> um, you know, if you know my story. Um, and there was a sense of peace that actually sort of um, enveloped me. And I realised that I had done something meaningful, for probably not for the first time in my life, but and at least in a very, very, very long time um, that was going to be profound. And... Um, you know, I have to say, um, you know, some years on um, has not let me down to date. You know, I, I still carry that that sense of peace and joy that I got from that minute years ago. I still carry that in my heart today. So, yeah. I um, appreciate that, Tony. So that's, I always it's do. A, it's a huge step. Absolutely. Like, you know, um, 
And I think for some, it's going to be the hardest set they ever do. Now, you've got to realise that we collect things. Um, you know, um, we're, we're big, you know. Um, how do I say this? If you have a, if you have a, if you have a bad experience in the shop, say uh, a, a customer service person, yes, it's a bit snooty to you. Well, yes. you're going to remember that, and chances are it's going to be harder walking back in that shop. Or you may never walk back into that what, shop because of it. That, that's what we do. You know, whether we, we acknowledge that or not, that, that's we pick things up and we run with them. Yes, um, we don't know the reasons why that happened. She, you know, her dog could have died that day. We yes. don't know. Mm. what the real story was but that's from our perspective that's what we see mm. and I think you know um, that's what we do when it comes to um, tackling this this um, prejudice we have about a god of our understanding um, you know and I don't believe it's a toaster and I don't believe it's the radio over there on the wall <laughs> I believe it's actually a genuine higher power that's greater than myself that can often whisper the guidance you know you do um, you yeah. actually said something earlier that I that I'd like to just quickly jump back to, and that was, I, I know your your experience and your story. One thing you touched on was how you can come in to a group of people and they can be your higher power. And for myself, and and the surrender. And for myself, that experience actually happened where that rock bottom happened on a Sunday night. On a Monday, I still to this don't know what drove me to go to that lunchtime meeting. I went into it, and while a surrender didn't happen fully for me, it happened. It was it was a really strong uh, feeling of here I am with people that understand me, people that know me, and my higher power at the beginning was going to meetings and being in those rooms with my other alcoholic um, people in the fellowship and that became my my um, oh follow I suppose and Tony I remember just talking about uh, having going to meetings for me was about um, finding that higher power for the starter. It, for me, it was, yeah, going into that area and making sure that I went to them was where I would I would use that as my higher power, I suppose. And as time's gone on, my understanding of, of my higher power has got bigger and wider and so forth. So, yeah, it's just... Well, it's, it's, it's exactly like a relationship with a person. You know, you often meet a person, you don't know much about them, you might know their name, you might not. And you start with little bits of information and you get a bigger and bigger and bigger picture. You become more intimate with that person, you know more about them, they know more about you. And it's it's a similar process, if not the same for a higher power, you know. Um, and for those that can't accept um, going to a God of your understanding directly, um, I think a, a great compromise is the group, is the AA group. And, and I mean, that's why AA um, is so important for recovering alcoholics because it is the group where you find wisdom. Because remember, I, I can't, for all my thoughts and my resources, I could not get out of this, this compulsion to drink. Yes. And so I needed, I needed different thoughts. I needed different actions to be able to create a different outcome. And... Um, 
you know, I find that there's a, a divine wisdom within a group of drunks talking about recovery, believe it or not. You know? Oh, no, I understand completely. I understand. And on that note, I'm just going to um, put on some music, I think. I think it'll be good for somebody to hear some hear some sounds. So let's go on to a song and we'll get back to that.
So that song was chosen by Tony. Thank you, Tony, for giving us a little bit of toe tapping. That's great. I wanted to move on to asking you, since coming into AA, if you could share with us what are the daily steps that you take to live your life, uh, you know, your life of sobriety, basically. Yeah, okay. Well, maybe I'll just quickly put in contrast with me living a drunk. So in, in addiction, I would often... I remember what happened the night before. <laughs> Wake up feeling a bit seedy, um, you know, not quite right, not not sick, sick but not quite right. Um, have a smoke, have a coffee, and go and head off to work. And um, and then by the end of the day, that thirst was building from about lunchtime onwards. No matter if I'd said I'm not drinking tonight or whatever, um, and I'd move. You know, the whole day was about getting my next fix and getting to the bottle shop or whatever to, to get alcohol and make sure I had a continuing supply. And so, you know, um, that was day after day and invariably... And year after year? And year after year, yeah. Mm. That, that, it's amazing the time that was put into this thing. Mm. Um, and I didn't feel terribly good a lot of the time. I felt anxious, uh, you know, felt despair, you know, um, was at odds with people, conflict um, a lot of the time. Um, and really trying to find a place where I could just find some peace and alcohol, I thought, was the way of doing that, where I could push everybody away and get drunk. And that was my peace, peace and solitude. Well, I didn't work. It was, it was not very good. So how I stay sober is like that. I don't get around acquiring my fix. Well, um, and I suppose for anybody that knows that alcohol, the drug of alcohol, is not a relaxant. No, it's not. no it causes more. <laughs> it actually causes no. anxiety. It causes depression. It yeah. doesn't actually um, cause you any serenity or peace no. at all. It and and so the next morning wasn't a, a, a sleepful night. It was I was unconscious and I would wake up, so to speak. I'd come to not wake up. If you know the difference between yes. the two, you know. Um, so. That's not what it's like today, and and a lot of that through the, the theme that we've had, um, I guess, is um, that I don't fight um, this process anymore. So, you know, when I get up, I'll often um, have a coffee. I used to smoke it. Uh, that's another gift of the 12 cents. I've given up smoking. I don't smoke anymore. I don't nicotine. Um, and I will open the daily reflections that we've read out on the show. Uh, I will. Uh, I could read a passage of the big book. I've actually got other books with prayers in them as well that I'll open up. And, and even if I don't pray them as a, specifically a prayer, I'll read through the words because I find them comforting. And what that's doing is it's it's not a big flash supernatural light in the sky. What it is is just setting my mind up. It's just setting my mind up with a higher thinking, with a, with a sort of a, a reaching out, realising that there are bigger things out there today. And, um, and so I turn my attention through those readings to what my day possibly might look at, what my responsibilities are in that day. Um, and, and I start, and I acknowledge that, you know, uh, I want, want to make it through the day sober without using the old patterns and behaviours of life. But should any of those rear up, then my higher power would help me acknowledge that and we can start again at any time type stuff, you know. So it's really about um, being self-aware these days uh, and not trying to get out of it, but actually trying to be present in the day. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah, sure. And I find that those readings and prayers in the morning 
just help me focus on the day ahead so I can be in it, not not to have, you know, addiction is about avoiding it. Yes. Recovery is about actually participating and being part of it. Now, that's all saying it's trouble-free and uh, because of surrendered everything's honky-dory. It can be quite the opposite, but what, what happens is I'm in a better place to stop, pause, and I'm in a better place than if I've actually, my mouth's run away from me because I can't do my stuff up. <laughs> I can actually say, you know what, I'm sorry. Uh, I, you know, no. say, look, actually, I was a bit harsh there. You know, um, I, I'm sorry for that. I didn't mean, I didn't mean that. I had a second thought and, um, you know, I, I see where I, I you know, I didn't get it right. So it gives me the ability to find some humility um, and work with the day at hand. Some people go on to review their day at night. I guess I do, I, but not in the more traditional sense where I actually sit down and pray. I don't kind of do all that stuff. Um, do you like, find yourself, do you, do you hand over your will every morning? To your higher power, or do you? Yeah, I do. And when I've got, when I, when I find that I'm taking it back, usually I'm not at peace, or usually I'm not expectant of good things. My human, um, uh, my human. Your humanity. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. I, I find myself that I start getting anxious and fear starts. And what creeping. do you do to find that balance again? So, you? so I stop and I research. I, you know, I read some wisdom, I go to a meeting, I listen to the wisdom of the group, I hear something in it that may actually challenge me or put me on that higher plane of thinking. Um, you know, I also meditate. I might not meditate in the usual sitting under a tree and going, mm-hmm. what I do is I actually just rest and on my bed and I read, and I read and I just close my eyes and I kind of see me drift off and it becomes neutral and I find that does snoring happen? Yeah, it can do. It can do. And I'm, I'm so I did. But, but I find that my mind is busy and I can hear my thoughts going yes. around. And as I sit there and just close my eyes and stuff, I just hear the world around me. I hear maybe a car going past outside or whatever. And I start to just slow down and stop. And, and so I, I do that not every day, but um, there are certainly days during the week that I'll do that. Um, and that's my form of meditation, you know. I think in this program, you know, we, we sort of have this idea, recovery is not what I thought it would be, you yes. know. And I had this pre-conceived pre idea, like I did about alcoholism, like I did about many things, that this is how it should be because this is what I thought. But actually what I found is it's when we talk meditation, it's actually a, a place of, it's a space of listening, a place of finding quiet where you can actually are ready to receive something and so however you do that is entirely up to you it doesn't have to be well, whatever your preconceived one idea. thing we know about alcoholics no. they don't like being told what to do no, so, exactly. so that is one of the joys of our steps is yeah. that it, you, you have that freedom to be able to work those steps how it works for you it goes the same way with with the obviously there are baselines of what we what we need to do but well, there's, you, there's a principle involved. You have to do something to receive something. Yeah. Yes, yeah. but we we can we can do it to our timeline. We can do it. It's not like we we've come into our space, but like you said, we sobriety in this journey is nothing like you pictured it to be. Yeah, no, it's, it's not. It isn't. I'm quite surprised. And I've had many a conversation too with people about being an AA and they have a vision of what it is and what it entails and what it means and it's all God-fearing and it's all blah, blah, blah. And it's really fascinating to 
explain to somebody actually mm. <laughs> this this is how it is and, and this is what we do and it works in a gentle way of caring as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I, there's a real life analogy when we go back to talking about religion. I used to watch my father wash the car every Sunday at 9.45 on a Sunday morning. Right. At 9.45, the car was always washed. And he'd be the first person to say, oh, I'm not religious, buddy. You know, <laughs> and I'm thinking, when I look at that, that's a religious experience, you know. The, 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 he does something religiously uh, every Sunday at 9.45. Yeah. And that's, that's my a religion... A religious thing is a repetitive having to do type thing. Well, that's not what we're talking about. Spirituality is actually, it's actually, we're talking about health and well-being. We're talking about uh, what we need, you know, just like we need oxygen um, to live. Well, we need we need a spiritual side as well to maintain mental health and well-being. And particularly addicts and alcoholics who, you know, who medicate with, with alcohol. Um, you know, and, and find that compulsion. Um, well, we need we need a higher thinking not, not to be able to do that. And I don't struggle with drinking these days, you know. I don't struggle. There was a time I would have walked over broken glass. I would have walked 20 miles to a bottle store to get, you know. Oh, I mean? yes, <laughs> I have. I, yeah. Once that terrible craving took craving. over, there yes. was no stopping uh, what I might do to get a drink in me. Well, I don't suffer from that today. You know, I know that the program works. And I know through those processes of steps what we've talked about, I know and that has relieved me. My higher power in the program has relieved me of the compulsion of wanting to drink. So I don't have that issue today. Um, uh, and like I, uh, you know, I could go past the pub what we've talked about and see the illusion of being carefree. Yes. But it's just an illusion. It's not, it's not real. Um, yeah, so... I really enjoyed chatting about that with you, Tony. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Thanks for inviting me. That's okay. And uh, this is a, a reading that, yeah, I enjoy. It just gives me a little bit more balance. AA taught him to handle sobriety. God willing, we may never again have to deal with drinking, but we have to deal with sobriety every day. When I had been in AA only a short while, an old-timer told me something that has affected my life ever since. AA does not teach us how to handle our drinking, he said. It teaches us how to handle sobriety. I guess I always knew that the way to handle my drinking was to quit. After my very first drink, a tiny glass of sherry my father gave me to celebrate the new year when I was 13, I went up to bed, dizzy with exhilaration and excitement, and I prayed I wouldn't drink any more. But I did when I reached college age. Much later, when I progressed to full-blown alcoholism, people told me I should quit. Like most other alcoholics I have known, I did quit drinking at various times, once for 10 months on my own and during other interludes when I was hospitalised. It's no great trick to stop drinking. The trick is to stay sober and stay stopped. To do that, I had to come to AA to learn how to handle sobriety, which is what I could not handle in the first place. That's why I drank. I was raised in Kansas, the only child of loving parents who just drank socially. 
We moved frequently. In fact, I changed schools every year until high school. In each new place, I was the new kid, a skinny, shy kid, to be tested and beaten up. As soon as I had begun to feel accepted, we moved again. By the time I reached high school, I was an overachiever, an honour student in college. I became editor of the yearbook. I sold my first article to a national magazine while still an undergraduate. I also began to drink at fraternity parties and beer busts. Upon graduation, I ventured to New York to pursue my writing career. I landed a good job with a company publication and was moonlighting on other magazines. Regarded as something of a boy wonder, I began to see myself that way. I also began visiting bars after work with my older associates. By age 22, I was a daily drinker. Then I joined the Navy and was commissioned as an ensign to write speeches for admirals. Later I went to sea, serving as gunnery officer on a destroyer escort and emerging a lieutenant commander. I also got into my first disciplinary trouble caused by drinking on two separate occasions. In the last year of my Navy service, I was married to a lovely, lively woman who enjoyed drinking. Our courtship was mainly in bars and night spots when my ship was in New York. On our honeymoon, we had iced champagne by the bedside day and night. The pattern was set. By 29, I was having trouble coping with life because of my drinking. Neurotic fears plagued me, and I had occasional uncontrollable tremors. I read self-help books. I turned to religion with fervour. I swore off hard liquor and turned to wine. I got sick of the sweetness and turned to ale. It wasn't strong enough, so I added a shot of vodka and right back to worse trouble than before. I began sneaking drinks when playing bartender for guests. To cure my dreadful hangovers, I discovered the morning drink. The early promise of the boy wonder faded and my career began to drift. Although my ambition still flickered, it now took the, term, took the form of fantasising. My values became distorted. To wear expensive clothes, to have bartenders know what to serve me before I ordered, to be recognised by headwaiters and shown to the best table to play gin rummy for high stakes with the insurance of a riverboat gambler. These were the enduring values in life, I thought. Bewilderment, fear and resentment moved into my life and yet my ability to lie outwardly and to kid myself inwardly grew with every drink I took. Indeed, I had to drink now to live to cope with the demands of everyday existence. When I encountered disappointments or frustrations, as I did more and more frequently, my solution was to drink. I had always been oversensitive to criticism and was acutely so now. When I was criticised or reprimanded, the bottle was my refuge and comfort. When I was faced with a special challenge or social event, such as an important business presentation or a dinner party, 
I had to fortify myself with a couple of belts. Too often I would overdo it and behave badly at the very time I wanted to be at my best. For instance, the 50th wedding anniversary of my wife's parents was the occasion for a huge family reunion at our home. Despite my wife's entreaties to take it easy, I arrived home in bad shape. I remember being dragged, drink in hand, from under the grand piano where I had hidden, to be locked in my room in disgrace. Above all, I was suffering in a pain because my performance and my accomplishments in life failed to live up to my expectations of myself. I had to anaesthetize that pain with alcohol. Of course, the more I drank, the more unrealistic my expectations became and the poorer my performance and the gap widened. So the need to drink grew still greater. At age 40, I developed a large lump in my pot belly. I feared it was a tumour. The doctor pronounced it a badly enlarged liver and said I had to quit drinking. I did. I went on the wagon with no outside help and with no real difficulty, except that I didn't enjoy life without drinking. I had to cope with the demands of everyday life without my comforter, my anaesthetic, my crutch, and I didn't like it. So when my liver had recovered after 10 months, I resumed drinking. At first, just one drink on occasion. Then drinks came more frequently, but were carefully spaced out. Soon my drinking was as bad as ever, all day long, every day. But I was trying frantically to control it, and it had gone underground now, because everyone I knew that they didn't want me to be drinking. Instead of drinking in fancy bars and clubs, I had to carry a bottle of vodka in my briefcase duck into public toilets and gulp from the bottle, trembling in order to keep from falling apart. Over the next two years, I sickened rapidly. The enlargement of my liver degenerated into psoriasis. I vomited every morning. I could not face food. I suffered frequent blackouts. I had severe nosebleeds. Bruises appeared mysteriously over my body. I became so weak I could barely drag myself around. My employer gave me one warning, then another. My children avoided me. When I awoke in the middle of the night with shakes and sweats and fears, I would hear my wife weeping quietly in bed beside me. My doctor warned me that if I kept on, I might have esophageal hemorrhaging and die. But now all choice was gone. I had to drink. What my doctor had warned me about finally happened. I was attending a convention in Chicago and carousing day and night. Suddenly I began vomiting and losing rectally great quantities of blood. Hopeless now, I felt it would be better for my wife and children and everyone in my life if I went ahead and died. I found myself being lifted onto a stretcher and whisked away in an ambulance to a strange hospital. I awoke next day with tubes in both arms. Within a week, I was feeling well enough to go home. The doctors told me that if I ever took another drink, it might be my last. I thought I had learned my lesson. 
but my thinking was still confused, and I was still unable to deal with everyday living without help. Within two months, I was drinking again. In the next half year, I experienced two more esophageal hemorrhages, miraculously surviving each one by a hair. Each time I went back to drinking, even smuggling a bottle of vodka into the hospital as soon as the blood transfusions had ceased. My doctor finally declared he could no longer be responsible for me and sent me to a psychiatrist who practised in the same suite of offices. He happened to be, by the grace of God, Dr Harry Tybelt, the psychiatrist who probably knew more about alcoholism than any other in the world. At that very time, he was a non-alcoholic trustee on the General Service Board of Alcoholics Anonymous. It was the late Dr. Tybelt then who persuaded me to seek help through AA. I acquired a sponsor and began attending meetings, but continued to drink. Within a few days, I found myself drying out on a drunk farm. While there, I read the big book and the grapevine and began the slow road back to health and sanity through the recovery program of AA. As the sober days grew into sober months and then into sober years, a new and beautiful life began to emerge from the shambles of my former existence. The relationship between my wife and me was restored to a love and happiness that we had not known even before my alcoholism became acute. She no longer weeps in the night. And as our children grew up, I was able to be a father to them when they most needed one. My company advanced me rapidly once my reliability was established again. Regaining my health, I became an avid jogger, sailor and skier. All these things and many, many more AA gave me. But above all, it taught me how to handle sobriety. I have learned how to relate to people. Before AA, I could never do that comfortably without alcohol. I have learned to deal with disappointments and problems that once would have sent me right to the bottle. I have come to realise that the name of the game is not so much to stop drinking as to stay sober. Alcoholics can stop drinking in many places in many ways, but Alcoholics Anonymous offers us a way to stay sober. God willing, we members of AA may never again have to deal with drinking, but we have to deal with sobriety every day. And how do we do that? Well, by learning, through practicing the 12 steps and through sharing at meetings, how to cope with the problems that we looked to booze to solve back in our drinking days. For example, we are told in AA that we cannot afford resentments and self-pity, so we learn to avoid these festering mental attitudes. Similarly, we rid ourselves of guilt and remorse as we clean out the garbage from our minds through the fourth and fifth steps of our recovery program. We learn how to level out the emotional swings that got us into trouble both when we were up and when we were down. We are taught to differentiate between our wants, which are never satisfied, and our needs, which are always provided for. We cast off the burdens of the past and the anxieties of the future as we begin to live in the present one day at a time. 
we are granted the serenity to accept the things we cannot change and thus lose our quickness to anger and our sensitivity to criticism. Above all, we reject fantasizing and accept reality. The more I drank, the more I fantasized everything. I imagined getting even for hurts and rejections. In my mind's eye, I played and replayed scenes in which I was plucked magically from the bar where I stood nursing a drink and was instantly exalted to some position of power and prestige. I lived in a dream world. AA led me to gently from this fantas- led me gently from this fantasizing to embrace reality with open arms. And I found it beautiful. For at last I was at peace with myself and with others and with the God of my understanding. Folks, we just want to move on to the next part. Yeah, I, I want to remind you um, that AA, you know, many, many um, books and self-help programs, you have to pay money. <laughs> well, we're not a business. We're actually in the business of sobriety. So there is no membership fees to join AA. All you need to do, all you, know, you need to do is to, sorry, I'll start that again. <laughs> All you need to want to do is to give up drinking, to have a desire to give up drinking, to be in that place of desperation uh, where you know you need to give it up. And we just you know, encourage you to come to an AA meeting. Mm-hmm. Check it out for yourself. I mean, at best, what we're trying to do is describe what recovery is like for us. Uh, but there is no... Uh, you have to actually experience it to know truly what, what we're trying to say. And so if that is you, if you're in that place where, the jumping off place where, you know, you've, you've got to do something about this, you just know that. Uh, we just encourage you to, uh, you know, to come in and get on the phone, ring the old hunter number and and make, um, make that um, your priority to come along and see for yourself one of those. Make that first step. That's right, yeah. First one is walking in the doors. Look, I'd really like to thank you for spending this time with me, Tony. Thank you so much. Um, It's been great. I really do enjoy having you on the show. Thank you. I just um, want to remind our listeners that if you want to drink, that is your business. If you want to stop, we can help. We're just a bunch of alcoholics who are out there willing to help. I want to give you a couple of details of places you can contact if you need. There's the 0800 AA Works number. That is 0800 229 6757. We also have the web address, which our internet website, which is aa.org. You can jump on there, folks, and you will see where there's a meeting around you. If you'd like to post us a letter, we do love those cards and letters, please do so at PO Box 6115, Dunedin North, Dunedin 9059. So please do come in and see us in a meeting. Uh, We're going to finish with a song this evening. I'd like to thank everybody out there for listening. Take care of yourselves out there. Matiwa, everyone. Until next time. Thanks. Until next time. Good night. Good night. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.